Welcome to the Drunken UX Podcast. I'm not going to do any clever intro uh, this time, although by saying that, I guess I kind of am doing an intro, which defeats the purpose, I guess, in the long run. So maybe maybe my mind, man. next episode, I'm just going to come in and it's just going to be nice, comforting. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I don't know. Next episode, let's start off with the sound of someone screaming. Uh, What? <laughs> <laughs> No, like happy, like it's a surprise kind of thing. Oh, surprise! Sorry, that I guess when I said that, it yeah, I can see why that. It went. went I went to a dark place. I'm wearing my Metallica <laughs> T-shirt right now. You know, um, uh, there's a lot of ways that could be interpreted, folks. I am uh your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other host, Ari Hill. See how you doing, Michael? We fixed the co-host thing there. I think other host is still like people are still hearing in their heads co-host. Well. Then I don't know what to do about the other. <laughs> I don't really care personally. Most. It's fine, guys, gals, peoples. I mean, if you puppies. if you die while we're airing the show, then I have to take over as host. That's just like a pilot co-pilot thing, right? Like I have I have to I have to take the show in while you're dying, and then after the show's over, then we get you help. But you don't have access to our uh, AWS account to upload the episode, so that's a problem. I know a guy. Okay. Uh. Uh, just steal my SSH keys. You'll be fine. Folks, if you are in the market for a map, be sure to stop by our uh, nice sponsors over at New Cloud. You can check them out at nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Uh, you can check out their product, the, their illustration services, their 3D mapping services, and what not. Um, what not? What for? What where? <laughs> when New Cloud. When, when, when Cloud. <laughs> Uh, let's see, and you can find us on the things, such as Twitter and Facebook, uh, run by a slash Drunken UX at either of those, uh, Instagram at Drunken UX Podcast, uh, Slack is DrunkenUX.com slash Slack. What do you got in your fancy little, uh, cold glass there? It uh, looks icy. This is a, uh, Tangerine tonic. It's a very warm day. It's, like, is well above freezing. Here in Ithaca, New York. So I wanted a nice summer drink. Right. <laughs> I, I went outside last weekend, and the, I I joke about Kansas's weather a lot, because Kansas's weather is, in fact, weird. Uh, but it was so humid. Like, it was a kind mm. of humid that even surprised me. And I've lived here for 37 years. Yeah. And, like, it was... It, it when people say you know you can cut the humidity with a knife, it was like that except worse. We um, we had that uh, last week, right? Is that when you had yours? Uh, yeah, Saturday I think. Okay, so my my neighbors are from Brazil. Like they they have he has land in like a rainforest. He built his own house with by his own hands, and um, and he was saying that like. We had this dense fog in the morning, and he was saying that that's what it was. It was like being back in the rainforest again. It was it was weird, like being surrounded by cotton. Yeah, it was it was bad. Um, and it's I mean it's still not great. It's cooler now, but our humidity is still just gnarly. 
as such, I too am drinking a cold, refreshing glass of scotch. <laughs> nice. Uh, I broke out my Tomatin 18, which I've I've had Tomatin? on the show before. Uh, Tomatin 18. Tomatin. Tomatin. Uh, <laughs> it's a Highland, and that's really all there really is to say about it. It's nice. It's a very robust. Um, I just took a sip of it and forgot that this is a strong 18. <laughs> that was a, I, I, I wish you could have seen that, uh, you, the audience, because that was a really funny face that you made. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's bottled at 46%, so, I mean, it's got a bite wow. to it, but it's also got a good, strong flavor to it. It's nice. I, I do like it. I just forgot uh, momentarily. <laughs> I'm drinking it out of my nice little slanty ice glass, so it is actually chilled. Um, nice. I like that. I do. I've I've grown to really enjoy this glass because mm-hmm. it does give you that nice cold quality without watering down the scotch. It has a nice slow release of the water and uh, helps uh, kind of open it up as you go. So, nice. trying to I'm trying to put this bottle away, and I'm going to go shopping soon. So maybe I'll have some new stuff for one of our future episodes. Excellent. And new and different, I guess. Speaking of new and different, what about it? You should have seen this article that I saw. We we were just talking about UX stuff a couple episodes, right? Yeah, well, I mean, so, we, every, every episode or so. We yeah, basically, every, if you don't mention in Steve Krug in an episode, you have to take a drink. That's a rule. Um, oh, it it should be. <laughs> we, oh wait, hold on. Merchandise idea: We need to have some kind of placard that has drinking rules for drunken UX. <laughs> I have a I have one. Can I throw a, yeah, a rule yeah. in there? Every time uh, you mention Jacob's Law, you have to chug. <laughs> That's uh, that fair. Every time, every time one of us stumbles over the marbles in our mouth because we drank too much. Okay, sorry, I, I derailed you. You 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 had a thread yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. So there was we we talk about UX a lot on the show, but there was this um, there was this really funny article. It was about um architecture UX, but like problematic architecture ux is this back so, to the uh the far side comic the uh he's pushing on the, the door that says pull the midvale school for gifted yeah see you know that off the top of your head i can't uh, do that <laughs> um that, that that comic was me in real life for a long time uh anyways um no it's it's like if you've ever been in, a, in a, like a modern office building and they have like you go into the bathroom and then the lights automatically turn on, right? And, and then they're usually on when I go in. They turn off after I've been in there pooping for fifteen minutes. Right, exactly. Yeah, I had that happen <laughs> once too. <laughs> um, so it, like that's the kind of thing they're talking about. It, it's where um, you know, the the lights. It's like smart controls. Maybe it helps them get like an Energy Star rating for the building, or maybe it helps them like save money on climate control costs or and lighting or other things but it's the what that's what they're calling architecture ux like that sort of stuff sure yeah and and so it's situations where the people who are actually in the building and using it sort of like silently rebel against these features um like one of the examples they had was um uh like you know remember those dipping birds like it's like a a ball with a bird's face kind of molded on it and then it has another ball on the other side there's a liquid that goes back and forth through the between the two glass balls i watched looney tunes as a kid yes one of those okay so uh someone would put one of those 
near the sensor in a room so that the light always stayed on. And so it's like sort of like little hacks to kind of get around this. Right, because um, these, these buildings, right, it's, isn't it called like LEED, I think is the... Yes, yeah, LEED certification. Yeah, LEED yeah. certification. So they, they implement, and some of it, I've seen this stuff, like it, there's some of that, the the motion sensing lights, like those are just showing up places. It's not yeah. a whole lot different from like the motion sensing uh, uh, paper towel dispensers. Mm. Like there's some yeah. of that stuff is leaking into all the places, regardless of if it was built with it or not. Um, right. It gets, it gets retrofitted in. And then others are these buildings that when they are created, you know, people have this grand vision of, well, we're going to do all of these things. We're going to put stuff on the roof. We're going to make the AC systems be intelligent. We're going to, uh, right. you know, again, with the lights, you know, we're going to bind the lights to certain different motion sensors in rooms and whatnot. Yeah. So, so Julia uh, K. Day, the A.Y., um, did a study on these things um, and just sort of like found different examples of architecture UX gone wrong, <laughs> gone wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, one of the funny ones was, and this, this is, this is, I would say bad UX. Um, there was a, okay. So imagine you have a building and you know how like in a normal climate, as the day goes on, it will get cooler outside and then at some point, like, you should open up the windows because it's cheaper to cool the room you're in by letting air in from outside than it is to use the air conditioner, right? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that happens in most places. The The failing there, right, is you're relying on the human to open the windows. You've got yes. the equipment there, but you aren't making the yes. equipment good enough to, be, to open the window itself. Right. And so what, what Julia found was there was a building that had that. And what they had was a sensor, and the sensor went all back to, like, this kind of main control panel that was in a hallway. And it had a series of, like, green lights. And if the light was green, it meant that you should open the window up. Because that makes complete sense, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. But I, re I remember looking at it and thinking that that looks like, if you've ever looked in, like, the utility closet of, like, a, a commercial space, there's, like, a, you know, it... So kind of like the circuit breaker, which like shows like which of the lights are currently running. Yeah, yeah, like one um, of those big alarm panel kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, fault, a fault so it sensor. Looks, it looks like that. Like, why would anyone? I, I mean, I don't think anyone would intuitively know. Like, what what they would need to have, and it seems like this would be easier to do, is just have a sensor right by the light. And then, or sorry, have the, the 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 display or the light right by the window, and then when it's time to open the window, it just lights up. And you could even just make it light up a thing that says "Open the window to cool the room." That's simple. <laughs> we we refer back to those laws of UX a lot, and for good reason because a lot of those laws are have been aggregated from different places over time, and they are very universally applicable and there's a couple of them like one of them is the law of common region and the other one is the law of proximity mm. they're very similar in terms of what they mean which is the way people perceive things that are either close together um yeah. or are grouped together and right. like what you're describing you know because when you started talking about what the panel looked like in the building i used to work in um here at uh, pitt state Right when you walked in the doors on the right-hand side, they had some of those big panels. 
Um, They were always locked, you know, and they just had like they were like a panel of little lights. And, you know, nobody in the world needed to worry about those except for like the campus police or whatever, because they were they were just fault sensors. They were. Yeah, exactly. They were were tied into the fire alarm and the security uh, sensors and all that for the building. Um, But nobody else ever looked at that because to them the thing on the wall with all the lights was the fire alarm that's right that's what it was and so if i saw another box on the wall with lots of lights that was near that you would just assume it was something like that. i would just yeah i would i would a assume it was part of that and b i would totally wipe it out from <laughs> my field of view right. like i wouldn't even care like add blindness like you just learn to ignore those things yeah no i i completely get that uh yeah it, it it just seems like that's one of those things where, like, um, there's a disconnect between the people who were designing the system and the people who are intended to live with live or work within it. It reminds me a lot when we were talking with Rachel Cherry about the Gutenberg accessibility stuff <laughs> and that that idea of the forest for the trees mm. when you're looking at problems and solutions like. On paper, the idea of let's let's have a system that the AC senses the outdoor temperature and then alerts the users to know when they can open their windows because that will be better. Right. That idea sounds great on paper and probably – and it passes all QA testing. Mm-hmm. It functions exactly the way it is meant to function until you put it in space. Right. Until somebody else has picked that up and put it into another system, um, in this case, like if you consider the <laughs> building itself to be a system, um, you know, now nobody is coming in afterwards. You know, there's – I shouldn't say there there aren't. I'm sure there are people out there who specialize in building usability as just a trade, but nobody hires those people in most cases to come into a building after the fact and – go through it it makes me think about what was uh, uh towering inferno the remake with the rock uh is that a movie yeah was it was it towering inferno or something like that uh where he's they they're burnt the the terrorists want to burn down this building and oh. they're using faults in the security system to do it but the rock was the guy that was hired to come in and <laughs> test the security system for any and all possible failings like that was his <laughs> job to come in and look at the system that was put in place and then figure out what they did wrong when they put it in or, <laughs> or not what they did wrong, but, but what consequences there were that weren't accounted for. Um, yeah, that were, that, that's kind of what that makes me think of is somebody <laughs> needed to come in after the fact and look at these systems and say, Oh yeah, I wouldn't put that there, but it, you also can't do it after the fact, right? Because, it's already been wired right. in. It's it's already bolted up and wired in and all that too. So there's a whole other set of dependencies at that point. The, I mean, they're like building a building, kind of requires like a waterfall management style just because of the constraints of the task. Because rapid iteration isn't really possible, like at certain stages. Um, but I think that maybe like usability testing strategies could be used for something like this or should it just feels incomplete like it it seems like the people that designed the idea took it as far as like getting it like okay we have it wired up basically like they made an api 
but then no one connected the API to a user interface. That that's what it seems like. Right. Um but the uh the thing it made me think of though is uh in uh, design of everyday things, which I think in our drinking game this would have to be like you have to do a shot now. Cuz I just oh. mentioned design of everyday things. Okay, one second. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. Um, <laughs> so in that book, um I mean, on the front cover of the book and the edition that I have is a, it's a, a tea the, kettle. Yeah, the teapot with with like the handle on the same side as the spouts. Yeah. Um, and the, what, and what do they says, call that? The impossible tea kettle or something? <laughs> or the it's got a name. Um, <laughs> uh, but the I mean, he says early on in the book that that these principles and things are um, it's something it doesn't have to deal with computers specifically. This is stuff that affects everything anything yeah. humans interact with usability in general and that's that is you know that's why in the field we refer to guys like norman like uh, nielsen um jared spool all of these folks because they have usability experience that does transcend the web and mm -hmm. the techniques that go towards learning the usability problems in any given system and i use that phrase system incredibly broadly uh, beyond computer systems the the skills and techniques you use to surface those are very cross applicable uh yeah across the board like to really like if you want to talk specifically about computer usability what i tend to tell people to look into is uh hci oh yeah, yeah. Hum human computer interaction that's where you start thinking about usability but only within the confines of the user, the keyboard, the monitor. Uh, right. But you don't have to do that to get into usability in, in a system. And I, I do, I, I like this because like think about to use this example. So we're talking about buildings. And yeah. even if that building is absolutely perfect from the moment it is launched and they do have people come in and, and check these systems out and ensure they're laid out well, what happens the first time they decide they need to tr change a storage room into office space? <laughs> and so now exactly. <laughs> your motion sensors were laid out differently for a different purpose and different usability, yeah. but nobody is coming in after the fact to address, you know, those kinds of things. Or if an office gets changed into a showroom or if your yeah. blogging platform gets changed into a CMS. Oh, topical. I'm just going to throw that one out there and run away from <laughs> it. But it, it, it that's it's that kind of changing modality though in any system again to use the word broadly that adapting to that and understanding the challenges cuz that's a what uh, some of this article was getting into as well was like they would have these lab rooms that weren't lab rooms originally. And yeah. so that was, I think that was the one with the, with the drinking bird example. Oh yeah. Oh no. With this, the, the one that was the, that I thought was hilarious was I think they did the lights to turn off so that they could oh, yes. run some kind of test. And the room had no light switches. Right. And so the way they got around this was whenever they had to do these tests, everyone had to sit completely still for 15 minutes and then they would run it. Yeah. I can't even imagine working in conditions like that and it, you that know it's, it's double weird because it makes me wonder about the system that was in there because any of like the motion switches i've ever seen 
yeah. still have a button on them too. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm like I, I I'm left wondering what kind of room this was that they what, got moved into whatever, apparently. But whatever it was was so inconvenient that it was easier to sit still for for multiple people to sit still for 15 minutes than it was to uh, do the other method. But the you know the the big takeaway here is how this reinforces the idea that this stuff is a, a cycle. It's not a finish mm-hmm. line. Even it doesn't matter how perfect it is when it launches. It matters what you do to make sure you are maintaining that standard six months down the road, a year down the road. As you add features, as you change features, are you still being as judicious that far down the road as you were when you created it? And and I think it also um, there's you know the whole the computing concept of separation of concerns, where you have kind of. Uh, not siloed, but maybe like modularized things that are related together. For example, the the thing with the the window cooling sensor stuff. Um, you know, the, their particular interface they did was like a terrible implementation. But as long as the underlying sensor apparatus, if they had some kind of like hardware API that could be tapped into and then repurposed uh depending on what how the room was being used you know i i mean you could work with that it would be different if it was uh like you know with the lab where there's no way for them to change how the lighting the lighting works hopefully we'll get better at it down the road we probably won't (laughs) but i would i would love to see that be a career for people or just to have that kind of expert become more commonplace like a usability expert for like real life you know, uh, work and living spaces. Unfortunately, I I see it a lot. Like I look at, you know, website redesign, you know, how many companies are willing to hire a consulting firm, you know, marketing mm-hmm. firm, designers, all this to come in and do a job and then send them away when the job is done. And, yeah. and that's what I think happens in these cases. Like even with these smart buildings that are built from the ground up to be forward thinking and all of this stuff, yeah, they're built with all that in mind, but as soon as the building is done and open, <laughs> then it's, you know, a landlord-tenant relationship and like so many of those, the idea of bringing spending money to bring somebody back in, you know, anytime you're reimplementing <laughs> spaces just is something that there's no point to doing for them. That reminds me of two things. The first one is um Kaizen, the uh, it's in the agile principles it's the the japanese management style of continuous improvement um where you have a person on staff to constantly be looking around the workspace and identifying those frustrating and frictional pain points and then resolving them um but it also reminds me of do you you remember those shows like uh uh, trading spaces or um vaguely extreme makeover home edition yeah i I didn't watch them but i know you know you know of them yeah i know of them Okay, so like in those shows, they would always have, uh, you know, like the the kid would have some kind of, and I don't know, like a medical condition or something, and but he really like race cars, and so the designers like go over the top making this whole race car themed room. It's like you know, big race car bed that's made out of like actual car parts. It's like bolted then, to the walls. Yeah, 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 and like you know, race car themed everything, but like built structurally into the room. Tire tread every time floors. I'd see... Yes, <laughs> and every time I'd see this, I'd think that's going to be super cool for like six months, two years tops, and then he's going to be into something else, 
and then he's gonna have this like over the top race car room and his friends are gonna come over and be like dude what's with your room and he's like oh, we were on that show <laughs> that, that damn show when do we get to start doing that with websites <laughs> right. I I oh actually I would oh, enjoy would the great. shit out of that. I would love a website where it's like you know extreme makeover website edition. I'd be down for that. I would judge that show. <laughs> oh, I don't have the time to do something like that. But please, if someone does, like send us the link. I want to <laughs> I want to watch it. <laughs> Let's switch gears over to CSS. Uh, this has nothing to do with UX because this has nothing whatsoever <laughs> to do with UX at all. It's totally boring and off the off the beaten path. Do you remember episode 30? Oh, of course. Yeah, everybody talked about does. the state of JS survey. Yeah. Uh, so episode 30 uh, was an episode where we talked about uh, a triad of topics, uh, which ranged from privacy to the Captain Marvel website, which was damn cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but we also perfect. talked about the state of CSS. Uh, there was a survey right. that was going on back then uh, through... I, shouldn't, I, I was about to say through CSS tricks, which is not the right way to phrase that. That was um, where we linked from. It was, yeah, it was one of the folks who writes for CSS tricks has right. done in the past, uh, and I, I, I'm like being cagey about the name, uh, Sasha Grief. And Sasha, if I'm uh, mispronouncing your name, I apologize vehemently. <laughs> but it looks like Sasha Grief, and I, I think that that is not a German last name, so I'm pronouncing it's... the E first. He's from Paris. Well, I do but not speak French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he uh, started the state of, of JS survey back in 2016. This year, they decided to do the state of CSS, which was super cool. And we said, hey, go fill this out. Uh, it will be beneficial to everybody to hear about what you know people think about CSS in this day and age. That survey is now complete and has released all of its findings. And he posted a uh, little article at CSS Tricks that we'll have linked in the show notes that were was three predictions from the state of CSS uh, survey. So I thought it would be fun to sit down and look through those. Yeah. And A, see if we agree, but also you know throw out any of our own predictions for for the topic of css the the site is uh 2019.stateofcss.com yeah and there's a there's a ton of information that like we're not going to go over anywhere near all of it at all um yeah certainly not in the next 45 minutes but uh go do go check it out it, and it's if nothing else it's a very cool exercise in data visualization so to start off with i do want to mention one other website that's kind of adjacent to all of this uh, if you're interested in keeping up with the evolution of css and what people are talking about and what's getting created uh, the w3 actually has a site called the future of style um and I'll, we'll have a link to it because the the link is kind of wonky it's w3.org slash style slash css slash planet the site is actually not awesome uh I saw that in the show notes, and I I looked at the site, and I was like, I mean, it's it's not bad. But then I looked at the title of the article, and it says the future of styles. Like, all right, yeah, and you're pushing it now. <laughs> and the thing about it is, the thing that will like really get you is that it's so that for those folks who aren't looking at it, uh, it's a 
they're using CSS columns. Um, at least I think they are. I'm just assuming that I'll, I'll, from looking at it. Um, so on my screen, it's a four-column layout. And all of the latest article oh links are anchors to story snippets elsewhere on that page. Which, as it turns out, using anchor tags, um, like it, inner page anchors, on a multi-column layout is super not usable. <laughs> but it is a source of all of what is getting talked about. And it is actively maintained and... It's definitely a good use case if you ever want to find a an example of CSS columns. Oh yeah, if you make the browser like uh, yeah, because I'm they're actively using pixels. columns on it for for the layout. Yeah, I see that now. And it's applied at a very high like the body tag is where they are uh, defining that. So I mean yeah. like it's yeah it's it's clean markup. I just don't think it looks great. I these are just it's. It's what web stuff... If you're ever curious about what the web looked like in the mid-2000s. A lot of text. <laughs> and, well, I mean, like, the images, like, scale when you expand or, like, contract the window. I, I think it's worth noting all of this stuff about the appearance because, by comparison, the state of CSS 2019 site is fucking amazing. It's, it is a very pretty site. Uh, it's It's, like... Everything that there is to love about modern CSS, I, I love it. Cool. Yeah, and in all fairness, too, I think you do need to give credit to Rafael Benite, whose name I will also apologize for if I said it wrong. Because <laughs> um, a lot of the like the visualization and stuff on the State of CSS site is uh, the Mevo DataViz library that they created. So, oh, okay. Like, there, there's definitely a lot that went into making it look beautiful, um, I think. But it, it's very yeah. cool. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's a very cool kind of layout. They have they have a, a t-shirt that has the logo from the the masthead on the, the site, but the, the it has the logo and then it has like little call out things that point to the all various elements of the logo and say like which CSS property it is. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, neat. I like that that's cool. The the thing about CSS, because uh, the the article is about like what the predictions are, and one thing I just kind of want to throw out there is that I I'm a firm believer that for something like CSS and and JavaScript too, for that matter, a lot of the a lot of what we see as the future is already here, so to speak. Like yeah, we've seen in the last couple years, you know, the explosion of CSS grid. Um, and the way it was adopted, the way CSS Grid was adopted into the spec and rolled in um, was very clean compared to past mm -hmm. iterations. Um, you know, the increasing use of CSS variables, the ability to do CSS shapes, um, the increased focus on being able to do functions in CSS. Like, you know, we've got attribute, we've got calc, um, and there are some others that mm -hmm. are in, in the works. Darken, um, lighten, saturate. Units. You know, now we've got FR units. We've got VW units. Um, Wait, what's what's FR? Uh, I, I don't know off the top of my head. It's like fractional ratio or something unit. Like, they're, oh. they're meant to huh. be, um, or maybe just means fraction because FR. But, okay. like, if, if you are laying out CSS grid, you can lay them out in, in FR units to control the scale. Hmm. Um, so if each one is one, they will be equal. If one is one and one is half, oh, okay. then or you know point five, then it will scale them accordingly. 
but it gives you <laughs> the, finally, you know, part of that scaling ability that we couldn't cover well with something like percentages sometimes. Uh, sure. Because, you know, FR units can go above one. Whereas if you go above right. 100% in CSS, funky things tend to start happening. <laughs> um, and then we also have more stuff coming. So there's things like spatial navigation in the works as a spec for CSS, which is really cool. Uh, it for if you haven't read any of it, it's uh, do you have a Fire TV, Aaron, or Apple TV? No, or... I have a smart TV, but not like uh, with a device. Do you use? Do you have like? Do you ever use like Netflix or something on it? Oh yeah, yeah. And and so you know how like you use like the arrow keys on your remote to kind of go up and down and side to side and all that? Yes. So that's yep. spatial navigation as opposed to Oh. Like think of it compared to tab navigation, which tabbing is linear through the layout. Spatial okay. is designed to complement that. So imagine being able to be on a page and use your arrow keys to Okay. Like a tab, except that you don't have to go next, 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 next. You could go next, down, and hmm. down again, and then left, and end up into something else spatially on the page. So that's a, a spec that's currently uh, under, is it, I, th I think that's in release candidate, but I may be wrong. More functions are always in the mix. Color adjustments. Uh, I think that was what you were just talking about, like being able to define, you know, changes to a color from lightning and darkening yeah. to saturation and things like that. Um, there's a color adjustment spec that's coming into play. There's a bunch of these outlined. Uh, there's an article. It's it's from last year, but some of this stuff still hasn't come out quite yet. But Smashing Magazine had a good article on it that we'll link. The the I, I want to just really underscore the um, color adjustment functions. I, I recently, I'm currently working on um, a commit on my uh, the diaper app about taking all these different color variables, like color literals, and then finding like kind of like one central color in each group, and then doing the rest of the colors as like calculated. If you if you do literal colors for everything, even if they're all stored in variables, it's still, it requires so much extra work. When a lot of times, like, you know, like you'll have like a color that's your primary color and you know that like you want the shadow color for it to just be slightly darker. It's easier just to do that using like calculations than it is to have to find the hex value each time. Yeah, it you know, that reminds me and this is kind of a, a tangent, but it I, I it makes me think about it. Um, Do you remember the uh, I say, do you remember it's still in existence, but the Adobe color tool? <laughs> Like, but it was spelled K U L E R, <laughs> color. No, yeah, uh, it's. I don't remember that one. Now it's just color.adobe.com, but they actually spell it correctly now. Um, oh, I see. But it's it's a color picker, and it's designed mm. to help you create color palettes. Oh yeah, and okay. they they give you all of these ways. Like you can tell it, I want you know triads or i want uh yeah you know i want complementary colors or things like that and so using that you can help specify like the way the colors are related from a shading standpoint and everything um right. i thought i think that would be very cool to see something in css to support from a calculation standpoint because that's all it is 
I mean, they're just doing right. uh, mathematical calculations against the the hue saturation and and all that. So, Sasha, uh, his first prediction was a very simple one, and it's one that I think is important, which is that there is still a lot of unexplored territory in the realm of CSS mm -hmm. as it exists today. It's a phenomenal, like the amount of stuff that we can do with CSS is mind blowing. And I think like we've talked before, one, one area like I'm particularly weak in, um, and this carries over from my days when I was trying to learn flash back in 2002 is animations. Like the, yeah. the things you can do with CSS animations is, Oh yeah. It's crazy. It's pretty nuts. And, it gets really involved as far as like animating keyframes and defining, you know, what's translating to what and all of that. That stuff is is hard. One thing that they pointed out was how underutilized grid was still. Mm -hmm. Um and not just yeah. underutilized, but like under known about. <laughs> yeah, like he so they um each of the things they have two two circles and like so there's the light blue circle which is how um, how many people have heard about it so you can compare relative amounts on those and then inside of that light blue circle is the a dark blue circle which is how many people have used it of those people who have heard about it and so the the flexbox one which you you and i both talked about flexbox before which yeah is really awesome stuff um most people who have heard of it have also used it uh, so the two circles are nearly the same width. Ninety five. But the one, yeah. But the grid one, it looks like uh, I don't know, like a subway token or something. Like it's fifty five percent of the people who are aware of it have actually tried it. And to put that into perspective, though, that's half the people who have heard about it have used it. Right. Well, the the number of people who have heard of CSS Grid is similar to that of Flexbox. Like oh. the light blue circle, yeah, they're right. nearly the same size. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's slightly slightly smaller, but um, and interestingly yeah. enough, the the animation stuff is actually, according to this survey, animations are ninety one percent, transforms are at ninety five percent, transitions are at ninety five percent. So I am way behind the curve on animations, as it were. <laughs> but yeah, I I found it interesting <laughs> that there's still a lot of reliance on flexbox and much less reliance on grid at this point. And I don't know if that's a, a comfort yeah. thing, if it's an appropriateness thing, because Flexbox and grid do have different applications. And so, yeah, yeah I don't know what the reasoning is. And unfortunately, this survey doesn't have the depth to answer the why, really. But it does certainly right. raise the question that there is a lot of territory there. CSS Shapes was another one. CSS Shapes is in use by less than a quarter of developers from the standpoint of being able to produce elements that have a shape to them. Like, you know, you can define if you've got a an image that you want to wrap text around, you can say, you know, this has a circle around it or whatever so that hmm. your text actually flows. And I was thinking about that one in particular, and I, I think this is one of those areas where maybe this is misleading because I think the application for that is somewhat limited. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people have heard about it. Uh, like yeah. it's, it's the smallest out of all of their shapes and graphics uh, uh, comparisons. Everybody has pretty much heard of all the things. Right. 
and shit is the least utilized. And I can't help right. but feel like that just means that the use cases for shapes is maybe lower. It's really not as obvious why you might want to use a CSS shape, even if you've heard of it. Now, a comparison for that is the masking to me. Because masking mm. is roughly similar. It's slightly higher. I think it's like 26% uh, use masking. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about, um, and I'm guilty of this, uh, and it's, I say guilty, it's just different, you know, there are different <laughs> ways to accomplish the same thing. Um, if you look at our transcripts on the website, when the little mm -hmm. speech bubbles pop up and it's got uh, you and I's avatars uh, next to it, they're round. But the images right. are not round. The images are square. Right. And I'm using a border radius to do that because that's okay. you know what a lot of people have done. They just border radius the images, and, and that gets you a circle. But you could just as easily apply a CSS mask <laughs> to create a circle. I think the fact that you did a border radius and that that was the first place I went to when I was thinking how I would do it is very indicative of kind of the divide between, I don't want to call us the old guard on <laughs> CSS, but like people from who have our level of experience compared to like newer people who are just getting into it and learning all of this stuff I'm just right away. glad you didn't come to me and say, hey, let's make them triangles. <laughs> I'm not sure I could do that with a border radius. <laughs> I, the other, in addition to the things that you've mentioned so far, the animation things and Flexbox, um, there's three other circles that have 90% or above adoption, and that's the calc function, font face, uh, like the font face at thing, and then mind-breaking properties. And, and I'm not completely sure what that refers to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, line break for uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean text. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh I'm thinking of uh, word wrap is what's in my head. Um, initial letter isn't used very much, which is interesting. Just yeah, I mean a that's a random thing to me, but that's kind of a style choice. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely like a thing, but like we'll always need to use font face, but initial letter is sort of like you may or may not. I think it stands out to me because it's one of the things that the the drop cap option is one of the things mm -hmm. that's in Gutenberg now. Uh, for paragraphs, oh, you, can yeah. do like a, you can turn on drop cap, and I think they use the initial letter selector to do that. Yeah. Just one of those, again, random kind of things <laughs> there. But, yeah, so, and variable fonts has a usage ratio of 37%. Variable fonts are something that I think will probably get its own episode with us at some point. I don't know, have you seen variable fonts at all? Have you played with them at all? don't know if I have. So uh, these things are, are super cool. And I saw them uh, demoed at uh, Anaventa Park up in Boston uh, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, the deal, I think it was Eric Myers was talking about them. And what he was showing was like, you can set up these fonts that can have properties of their own. So for instance, like, uh, uh, and I apologize to all my uh, typography uh, folks out there because I don't know all the, Lexicon, lexicon, uh, lexicon, lexicon for typography. <laughs> but like, if you've got a B, you know, and and you've got the the stick that comes up from the top of a lowercase B, you can oh, it you can define right. See, even you know this better than I do. Um, they you can set your font to make those longer. 
um, or the the serifs, you can have a setting oh, that a, stretches a sender. a sender. A sender. That's right. I know that phrase. Ascenders. And let me guess yeah. what a, a P and a Q use. Is it is it a descender? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is correct. But you can set you know, and like you can set the way the font gets thicker and lighter, you know, if it's regular or bold or whatever, as opposed to just their weight. Um, mm-hmm. You can change the way they get thicker and lighter. Uh, any, oh. Basically, all of these different little properties of the fonts, you can turn into properties that you can set in CSS. That's cool. They're actually, at this point, fairly well supported, oddly enough. Uh, IE11 doesn't support uh, variable font properties, <laughs> um, of course. Mm-hmm. But Edge does, uh, <laughs> Firefox does, Chrome does, Safari does. Um, they just aren't, they obviously take a lot more effort to create. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I haven't looked at like Font Squirrel or some of those where, you know, or even Google Fonts. I don't know how many like font repos have a lot of variable fonts yet, but they're definitely interesting from a design concept. And I think they provide a lot of options to people outside of just that question of, well, what font do I use? Well, pick a font, and maybe you can make that font more interesting to whatever it is that you want or something. There's there's some stuff there that I think would be very interesting to dig into. Yeah, definitely. It's I, I have not used it. I thought it was maybe something else, but um, I haven't used it yet. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. I'll throw, I'll tell you what, uh, after we record tonight, I'll go hunt down an article for it, and I'll throw it in the show notes for everybody. So if you want to go learn about variable fonts... There you'll go. Uh, nice. Scroll snap used by 12%. Uh, that's where, like, you hit a button and then it, like, jumps down to a spot but eases. Um, well, not so like, much hitting a button, but just, like, when you scroll. Um, this is okay. especially useful for mobile devices. Okay. So, like, if you're scrolling your page, you know, with your thumb, you can have it kind of bind to sections a little bit, kind of like an anchor. Okay. So that you can scroll in between. So, like, the, where you'll see this be really useful is if you've got panels of something. Uh, and okay. And while I hate to use this as my example, but a carousel. Oh, and then you hit a button, like you hit next or something. Right. Or it's just, it is doing next, then it scrolls to the next one. And So when you, or like on a mobile device, if you're using a swipe action to scroll, it will. Yes. You know. We, we use that at, uh, for menu navigation at my job yeah that's right I've, i have seen that before but i haven't used it myself but that's at 12 percent. i this is one i'd like to learn more about myself from an accessibility standpoint because i feel mm-hmm. like i feel like on on one hand scroll snap feels like a really good assistive tool for people with motor control oh um, yeah issues i can see that but i also wonder if it doesn't simultaneously create a you know friction for them as a consequence like could also see that yeah like it's it's one of those things i see opportunity but also concern and it's until i work with somebody that can tell me i just (laughs) don't know um on that you know what's the the funny thing with that is is it's great until your settings get like messed up somehow on the page and then it keeps wanting to snap to like something that's like 50 percent off yeah and you just you can never get the thing to stay on the screen i had that happen once (laughs) um the End result being, like, all of these things we're talking about, they all kind of fall into this bucket of interaction kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. and it feels like, looking at these results from the survey, the, the interaction area is where there's still a huge amount um, 
you know, mm-hmm. overflow anchor, um, that's got very low adoption. Overscroll behavior is that running about 50%, 48%. But all of these interactive pieces, and this is where CSS is evolving. So naturally, I think it's, I think it's normal that we would see less coverage there. But it, it does speak to how much opportunity there is for, you know, folks to still be a CSS expert and being a CSS yeah. expert really does mean knowing the things that the other people don't. Um, it's not just about knowing how to, you know, shorthand a font declaration that used to be like the pinnacle of being a good CSS guru. I can shorthand, yeah. shorthand, uh, uh, background. I can shorthand font uh, and, <laughs> and nobody else can do that. But, anymore knowing how to write good calc functions knowing how to write these interactions knowing how to do the animations uh those things are still i think opportunistic for folks yeah sasha's next prediction is that functional css will increase so do you remember css in garden yes did you use css in garden yes did you contribute to css in garden well, no. How many times can I say CSS Zen Garden before it just really starts running together? <laughs> I think that this should be another you have to do a shot was, thing. Yeah, I was getting there. Uh, <laughs> so CSS Zen Garden is an example that Sasha uses. So for those uh, who are uninitiated to it, back when CSS was first becoming popular and exploding onto the scene, keeping in mind, CSS is 23 years old now, with 23 this year. Uh, like, Ugh. it's been around forever. Wait, hold on. Before you go further, I just want to read his opening paragraph because it's so relatable. Do it. If, you, if you're old enough to remember the CSS Zen Garden or to have actually learned CSS through it, in which case I know how you feel. My back hurts when I get up in the morning as well. I read that. <sighs> and now, now that you have read it, I realize I wish you hadn't read that for everybody because that cuts a little deep. It's yeah, it's too too real. It's a little <laughs> little too yeah, a little too real for me. It's a, but but then he says then this next trend might seem weird or even downright wrong, and I completely agree. Yeah, it, and it does. <laughs> um, there is that certain quality, and I've I have had to make arguments for some of these things as a consequence yeah. that, um, uh, because they are different. CSS Zen Garden for those who aren't familiar with it came out. Um, I don't know what two thousand God. Two, two thousand three. Yeah, it was it was early two thousands. It was like right around when um right around WordPress two. And what they did was they built a site that was just very clean semantic HTML, and it was a very basic layout. I think what it had a header area with a nav bar. I think there was a sidebar yeah. and a section for content. With a few like little items thrown in there, right? An image and text and stuff. If you use the web anywhere from, I don't know, early 2000s till oh, 2010, like the first decade of 2000, I think, most sites had a layout kind of like this. It still exists for what it's worth. Like We're, yeah. we're talking about it as if you can't go look at it now. It's, it is still a thing, and you can still go check it out. Oh, actually, yes. If you haven't seen it before, do go look at it because it's really cool. <laughs> the, the whole idea was that you would take their site and write your own CSS for it. And you would go into their gallery and you could look at 
all the different ways that you could present this site using nothing but CSS. Well, yeah, like the idea of the site was that given given some raw semantic HTML, how many different ways can you present this using purely CSS to modify the presentation? Right. Because because this was back at a time when when we were sort of coalescing around this idea that HTML was for the content and for the the markup of the content, but not the display of the content. And CSS was for modulating the presentation or, or how it looked and really separating those two responsibilities entirely. And so like you, your site had like a good site or like kind of the standard you would try to get to is one where, you weren't doing styling on any of the elements directly. You were just doing it in the CSS. Yeah, using you know nested selectors or or whatever the case was. The yeah, the problem was that at least in today's day and age, but even back then a little bit, was that it was a really great exercise, but not altogether practical, like as a production mm. approach. I, it depends on your site. It it does depend on on your site. And the the art or the the argument I've heard, and I can't remember if this was in uh, an argument that Sasha made or if it was somewhere else that I had read about it. But the the thing was that very few people build websites in a way that they need to update their sites to a whole other layout while maintaining mm. the markup. Like if they're doing a redesign, they're generally okay. redesigning the site. They aren't just redesigning CSS, although that was kind of the philosophy that was being preached at the time. Well, okay. So in, from that perspective, I agree with you. I I think that it was a good exercise um, in the same way that doing like, uh, you know, code exercises are good practice. Even if the stuff you're doing in code exercises aren't specifically directly applicable to your day job. But I, but I think that what the take home that that I got from doing CSS Zen Gardener and looking at it was that doing redesigns, the friction is greatly reduced when your content is separate from your presentation. Yeah, totally. So, and and that and that has borne out true for me in in practice because taking the content, if you organize your content well, you do you know containers and you separate things out into different regions and everything else. Then when you have to later on, you know, make the page dynamic because you're suddenly, you know, using PHP instead of static HTML or you have to, um, I don't know, change the layout completely because you're using a new redesign. Um, it's far easier to take out those, uh, the, con- that's the content you need to, re- to remove and move into a new thing. The, the reason that we explain this is because the approach to CSS in Garden relies on techniques that are diametrically opposed to functional CSS. Functional CSS <laughs> is, are, is the approach of like BEM, um, block element modifier, or tachyons, um, or atomic yeah. CSS. These, uh, these approaches that believe in like, you know, one selector, one purpose. But as a consequence, your content must have all those classes in it. Whereas CSS Zen Garden is all about nested selectors and things of that nature. Oh yeah, we even didn't we do an episode on functional CSS? I think it was a long time ago. Yeah, 
It was uh, episode 13, first season. Holy crap. Okay, yeah. I don't feel bad about not remembering where that fell. Um, We've done three times that many episodes since then. Or uh, it, this is the th- three times plus. This is, this is episode 40, FYI. <laughs> yeah, and that was episode 13. I, you do that. I don't think I said that at the start <laughs> of the show, so it's fair that I said it now anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the approaches are, are in very different. And what... What you're seeing are a lot of these frameworks like Tachyon, like Vim, that are growing in popularity um, and that are mm-hmm. finding their place despite the fact that it does encroach on your content as a consequence. Uh, but people are finding them very good to work with and that they're able to get what oh, they want. Interesting. And they're also finding that the the sort of monolith frameworks like Bootstrap and Foundation – yeah. Out of there's a big list of of all these frameworks and they rank them by right. like I forget what it is. I, I think it was like who either who's heard of it, uh who uses it and what their satisfaction is or they're like or who huh. wants to learn it. Like there was this uh a calculation they did, but Foundation and and Bootstrap took two of the three bottom spots in satisfaction. Uh so yeah, like boot, Bootstrap uh everybody knows Bootstrap. Oddly enough, 79% of people knew about Foundation. I don't know where the other 21% of people are living. But um, <laughs> then, yeah, so you have awareness, you have interest, and then that goes into satisfaction. Wow. And 100% of people are aware of Bootstrap. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, it's, that's really wild. And only 17% have an interest in it. <laughs> like, that's yeah. that's in, an incredible – That it's literally a 100% <laughs> flop. Bootstrap goes from the How? most aware uh, framework to the least interesting. <laughs> it's like it's like yeah, we know about you. <laughs> what what does interest does interest mean that like I want to learn more about it or does interest mean I want to use it or what does it mean? Uh it is so they have uh, their methodology here. The interest level is a calculation of those who said they are interested divided by the mm. number who said they were interested and not interested. So it's a it's a okay. ratio. It's a percentage. Yeah. Got it. Interesting. But yeah, so Bootstrap had a 52% satisfaction rate, Foundation had a 45% satisfaction rate. Um but then Tailwind had an 81% satisfaction rate. What What is Tailwind? It's a it's a functional framework, functional CSS framework. Tachyons had a 66% satisfaction rate. I've heard of that. Yeah, Tachyons is another one. So this idea that functional frameworks are going to, you know, grow in in popularity is something that is maybe to watch out for. I don't know that I agree or disagree. I think a lot of it has to do with selection bias a little bit maybe in the survey as well because I think the way you approach CSS frameworks depends on what you're building. You know, if you're building... WordPress themes versus, uh, you know, Angular applications, the way you approach CSS is going to be very different, I think. Okay, I'm looking at Tailwind CSS. It's pretty neat. I, I haven't the, used the, Tailwind, um, so I don't know what their technique I, is. Uh, the site is tailwindcss.com, uh, and the the homepage has kind of like a, a cutout frame of a, looks like maybe a Sublime editor. And then a like a widget of showing contact information for someone. 
and then they're they show the HTML and then just adding Tailwind CSS classes to it as they and as they're doing it, it's like live updating the widget. Um, and you can see how like each of the things they add affects the the widget's appearance. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I've pulled it up here. It, it does look very much like a tachyon style uh, yeah. approach. And yeah, yes, I, without yeah. but but readable. <laughs> without digging more into it, I don't know if like this is because I see them like the way they're doing their uh, their text gray six hundred. I'm wondering if they aren't doing like a you know a, a JavaScript scaffolding around that as well, oh. so that you don't have yeah. to like write the individual classes. You you write like the the parent classes and then like the dash number is then calculated with JavaScript or something like that. Maybe. I don't know. Huh. Do you use Tailwind? Let us know. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd really like to hear more of it. This is pretty cool. But the, the utility classing approach seems to be popular and increasing. I don't, I don't know. And I, I do kind of go back to that comment about if you grew up with CSS in garden, you may look at, utility css and functional css a little differently and because i do i guess you know i i know i do look at it differently i would say that that bem css like block block element modifier is probably the closest to like traditional css and garden css how many times can i say css in this bem is (laughs) is close ish i think a lot just all comes back to like what i was saying It, it depends on what you're making yeah i I don't know a better way to describe it than that be simply because people who are doing app frameworks, you know, the way that you have to think about everything in your browser window is different from somebody who is writing a news article. Yeah. If you've got a lot of classes in those news articles that are ultimately reliant on your framework, it means you can't change those articles over time. And you think about, you know, organization like, you know, CNN or, like Fox mm-hmm. or or MSNBC or any of these folks that have now been around for decades and decades and decades and and on the web most of that time and and if you've ever done any uh, digital archaeology and gone back and looked at like the articles from CNN on September 11, 2001 you know mm-hmm. those articles are still available and they need those articles to still be readable and accurate oh, from a, yeah. from a presentation tam- standpoint and there's a lot of Emphasis now, uh, I know Washington Post has done a lot of these. Um, the New Yorker does a lot of these, like these articles that they're kind of one-off articles because they're mm-hmm. embedded with all kinds of data visualization and imagery. Right. And like the page itself is an, an, an experience. And their approach to those things has been that those pages – have to be like little miniature apps basically they have to contain all of their own stuff because in 10 years they want that content to still be archivable basically archival right uh, you know in quality i think the degree to if you have to insert content or stuff into the content area that deviates from that if you have to style like if you have an image Maybe it's remember that graph we talked about a while ago, a few episodes ago, with the um, showing the the value of the real estate yeah, yeah. stuff for yeah. So um, that was like a pretty wild thing. So if you have to do something like that, okay, yeah. it it has to live in that page. 
Right, right. But like if you can modularize it as much as possible and kind of silo it into its own thing, you know, wrap it in a div and class the div, you know, uh, not future proof or whatever. I just make it so that it's easy to find and extract and isolate if possible. <laughs> Having been someone who has been party to at least a half a dozen redesigns, maybe more future you or the people who replace you will thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the The last uh, prediction that Sasha made is the one that uh, you were starting to look at there, which is that mm -hmm. the battle has just begun. And this is where this quadrant, um, this is really cool. So what, what they did was they, uh, they took all these frameworks and they created a, uh, a scatter plot in four quadrants, which, which, uh, if folks want to find that, where is it? Is that under the environments? No. Oh, it's on technologies. Okay. So, so imagine if you could think back to like, uh, maybe high school algebra, you know, you have like the four axes, axis one, two, three, and four, or uh, quadrant one, two, three, and four. Except in this case, every number is positive, and it's just divided in half on user count and divided in half on satisfaction percentage. So satisfaction percentage goes bottom to top, zero to 100, and user count goes left to right, zero yeah. to 10,000. Um, so it's divided in half, and the top right is adopt. The bottom right is analyze. And then on the left side, on the top left, we have assess, and the bottom left is avoid. So avoid and adopt are diametrically opposed, and then assess and analyze are diametrically opposed. But what they mean, though, is assess is low usage, high satisfaction, technology is worth keeping an eye on. So it's like, don't use it yet, but be aware of it. Adopt is high usage, high satisfaction, safe technologies to adopt. Um, it's worth noting there are only three technologies in there, and one of them barely made it in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> avoid is low usage, low satisfaction. Technology is probably best avoided currently. And then analyzes high usage, low satisfaction. Reassess these technologies if you're currently using them. I also think that this quadrant also means it's if it's highly used but but not satisfying. If it's highly used, that means there has to be some reason why so many people are using it. But if it's not satisfying, it means that it hasn't kept up with with what we need today. And so uh, maybe that could be like addressed somehow. Although there's only one thing in that. Just yes. Like, and so. it's worth noting, too, like this is all also broken down by type. So this whole thing like includes frameworks, CSS and J JS, um, met methodological approaches, and the pre and post processor approaches. Mm -hmm. Um, so you've really got everything in this matrix as far as that goes that the analyze quadrant has the one thing. And that was what you said. Less is the one thing that's there. Yeah. And ba basically less is getting its ass kicked by SAS. Yeah. So SAS uh, by comparison, SAS is far away up in the top, right? It has, uh, 9,682 respondents using it and 90% satisfaction. So like. If you're not already using SAS for your CSS compiling, you should be. Yeah, it's it's killing everything. Now, uh, oddly enough, uh, post-CSS does have higher satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Oh, but lower adoption. Yeah, so... But way lower adoption. So yeah. that may... I, I'll be interested next year to see if that actually yeah. is able to cross that threshold from assess into adopt. That would That would be neat to see, yeah. There's a handful of things in the avoid column, not many, <laughs> or quadrant, 
But one that will stand <laughs> out to folks, I think, is Foundation. Yeah. So so Foundation has three thousand five hundred forty five people using it, but but forty five percent satisfaction. And so it's kind of like almost near the center. It's right near the top of the avoid quadrant, almost to assess. By comparison, Bootstrap is technically in the adopt sector, barely at fifty two percent. It's sitting right above analyze, which I think yeah. is I think is pretty spot on where it should be. Nine thousand seven hundred fifty three people using it. This, since this is the first year of the survey, you know it's it's there's no trend yet. But if I had to guess, mm-hmm. if they had done the survey last year. I think both of those would have been higher last year. Probably, yeah. I I think there is an increasing trend for folks to move away from monolith frameworks. Mhm. Um and I'm I will raise my hand on that because I think for foundation in particular cuz we use foundation and one of the my biggest problems with it is it's just so much more than I need. Yeah. That you know, once I identify a layout and I know, well, I only need a handful of things. I don't need a, even a full grid. You know, that there was that emphasis uh, early on in, well, you should do grid layouts and, and get a grid f- uh, framework and all of this kind of stuff. Because, boy, that 12 column, mm-hmm. that's the future. But it really isn't. Yeah. We have the tools and resources available in CSS that I don't need foundation to do a simple grid i can do it in a couple lines of css now on right. my own and so there's no reason for me to bring all of the other js and all the other css even in the simple version of foundation the, the fact that bootstrap exists i think that bootstrap could easily be supplanted if someone else wrote a something that would serve the same purpose and, and what i mean by that is bootstrap's purpose and which is reflected even in its name is that it is a thing you can just drop in to whatever you know, app you're spinning up, you know, hackathon or whatever, you just drop it in there and you get a serviceable looking site. This this isn't meant to be like your long term. Uh, my site's gonna look like this forever. It still calls back a little bit to the CSS Zen Garden like ethos of like, uh, you know, we are using this for CSS for now. The content is independent. Later on, we're gonna replace it with better CSS. Um, if we care to, I think that if someone were to make a a thing that you could drop in, that was just like, you throw it in there and the site doesn't look like shit. Um, then bootstrap, I could see that going away. Well, I think that's why, um, looking at their quadrants, uh, material is higher than foundation. Mm. It's officially in the assess quadrant. And I would probably say that if I had to guess, I think that its trend is probably the opposite. I mm-hmm. think material is probably increasing in velocity right now because I think it kind of does that. Yeah. The the things that I that I dislike about Bootstrap and Foundation is that for both of them you have to learn how to use it and and the more complicated this framework's got cuz like back when Bootstrap was just called Twitter Bootstrap, it was really simple. It had very severe few classes. You just drop it in, and then the site doesn't look like ass. Um, but it's gotten more complicated over time in the same way that WordPress has. But I think that if there was something where you just you drop it in and you have like you know very basic framework, and then it just looks simple layout. Yeah. Tail. By the way, Tailwind is at eighty-one percent. 
that's oh, like yeah. the, yeah, the highest there. of all of the perp of the css things tachyons is i think a good example of what you're describing like tachyons even though it's got low adoption mm -hmm. its satisfaction is okay um, yeah but it's one that once you learn the methodology of tachyons adopting it is very easy like you don't yeah there is very little guessing with the uh, tachyon approach or atomic css for that matter mm -hmm. um, atomic css is um higher i i guess i find it interesting they've got tachyons labeled as a framework but atomic css as a methodology and i guess strictly speaking that, oh, interesting I, I, I suppose that is true in a strict sense um i think of them very similarly huh. the other thing that's worth noting here is that out of all of these there is one css and js technique that's getting ready to make the hop from the assess column to the adopt column oh yeah and that's the styled components approach right is that what we talked to dustin Shaw about several episodes ago which i think was episode 31 yes that sounds right ish somewhere around there um yeah when dustin was on and yes. his whole thing was he taught css in js techniques now again right. that is a specific technique for a certain type of development approach um that isn't something you would do for everything but as if you are a person who deals in css and js it looks like from that standpoint the battle is being fought and won by styled components css modules is up there css modules and styled components both have very tightly coupled uh satisfaction percentages but styled components is running away with the adoption rate it, you know what's funny point. is so um I, I, have you done curve fitting before counterfeiting cur curve fitting oh i was like i i don't want to get arrested <laughs> don't admit to the counterfeiting <laughs> uh cur curve fitting when you have a scatter plot and then you find the the function line that best fits oh yeah yeah, yeah i remember yeah. that Okay, so if you look at the green dots, so these are the CSS and JS, it's... Um, Almost logarithmic. That, yeah, logarithmic, that's what I was thinking of. So it it's like starts very low on the left side, it goes up very quickly, and then at about 20%, roughly, it's about halfway to its maximum, which is uh, about 85%. Um, but then the the yellow ones are almost linear straight across and they just really above 80 percent and the red ones are all are, over there isn't enough samples for red ones but i would really, i would yeah, probably guess not. that to be a like a linear from stylus if you make drew a line from stylus to sas stylus is about 48 percent sas is just above 90 um and they go like all the way almost all the way across the graph but then um the purple ones are a um almost a not quite power law but like a uh it starts high kind of high on the far left so like people who very few people who are using them have high satisfaction but then the ones that are like more widely adopted have lower satisfaction it's, that's bootstrap what's what's that uh the the name for like when it starts out really chaotic like it goes up it has a lot of variation but it yeah. it then smooths out oh yeah um uh, whatever that like i i literally have not had a math class since high school so the, the taylor series? Uh, whatever that yeah whatever that series is called in <laughs> statistics uh that's what that looks like to me yeah the 
the post processors uh definitely they're they're only four, so that's not yeah. enough. But I mean SAS is running away with that. SAS is good. I mean that's that's all that means. Like SAS really is good technology as far as that SAS goes. SAS does a very narrow thing very well. What I think you can take away from all that though is that a lot like JavaScript, um CSS in all of this is not standing still, whether that's looking at the processors, looking at the frameworks, looking at the methodologies. Um, you know, one of the reasons there are so many in the assess column is because the adoption rates are low, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people attempting to innovate. And the people who tend to adopt those things early on are generally, you know, what you would call those true believer type personalities. Yeah. So you will see a lot of high, I think, uh, satisfaction with those technologies early on. But it's a testament to the ecosystem that we're seeing a lot of that. And a lot of these, you know, new systems, Tailwind, I I, I want to say Tailwind is, is newer. I, I don't know. It's it's new mm -hmm. to me. Um, but a lot of these names that get thrown out, even if you start talking about things like Radium and Aphrodite or whatever, um, you know, they're they're new, they're up and coming, they're they're different approaches to different things. And it's good because in the wash, the best mm -hmm. stuff will come out. And you'll see that adopted into the bigger, better frameworks, hopefully, without them necessarily getting bigger. I think it's really cool how much different, how many different CSS frameworks there are. And it's really great that so many of them have such high satisfaction. I, uh, I am not at all surprised about Bootstrap. I still use it. Uh, I mean, I, I, that would still be my go-to framework, but like, it's sort of like, uh, like, Oh, I guess I'll use Bootstrap kind of thing and not, something I would get excited about. Like, Tailwind was exciting to watch. I'm waiting. I think, you know, if I had to make a prediction based on all of these results and, and what I personally think will be coming, you know, we're getting better at dynamic CSS, you know, the, the use of variables and functions and things in mm -hmm. CSS. The reason, if folks don't know, you know, like SAS, the reason we use SAS is because we need to compile all of this complex stuff into a output plain thing. Because yeah. asking the browser to do that is a very heavy action. Um, I mean, if you've ever run, you know, gulp styles or something right. like that, and you've sat back and waited 18 seconds for your styles to render, <laughs> you know, imagine that for every time you visit a website. It's it's a lot to ask. So we we can't do that at this level yet um it's just not not appropriate but i think it will get there now i'm thinking that that prediction is years out i think in the next five to ten years you will see something like a SaaS approach to css be possible in browser uh i think that is a thing that could be done one thing that we should mention is the missing features what do developers feel is currently missing from css this was neat so 3% of respondents, this is the most number of respondents, container queries. Yeah. So uh, you explained it to me earlier. Why don't you explain what it is? It's so, yeah, like, you know, you're familiar with media, media queries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the same kind of thing, but at the container level. So uh, checking, you know, how wide is a div and based on that, figuring out how to display this stuff in it, as opposed to mm -hmm. how wide is my viewport? Media queries are only interested in viewport widths. 
that seems like something that is realistic that we could accomplish given that we have media queries already. I, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, what we're going to see there is maybe the approach like feature queries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can do feature queries now and being able to test whether or not a browser, a given browser even supports a given CSS function. And if you know that, then you can do other things. And I think that's the gateway because that's kind of how uh, Grid was approached. Right. They used feature queries to gate off uh, the Grid functionality until it was finished and deployed. And then you just got rid of the feature query. Right. And so you could do that same thing here with a container. You could say, you know what? Do a feature query for container width or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if it supports that, then display it this way if it doesn't just do it normal or you know what you would have default and then eventually you would take away that feature query and have the ability to check well if it's you know if it's 50 percent width then we're going to do this if or if it's you know 600 pixels we'll do this that may seem weird to folks because they're gonna say well yeah but that's responsive design <laughs> but it's not an application you know right an application may have a window in it that has a variable width or things like that. That's where it's important to remember that these techniques and tools and features don't apply to just writing a blog template. You know, that's where this stuff, like, it's great in a world where your containers are perfectly predictable, but they aren't everywhere. So, yeah. Another yeah. good example would be, uh, like, if you've got floated elements next to each other. And knowing, like, if you've got one of those floated elements and you don't know how wide, if it's a picture. Right. Maybe that picture can be different widths depending on what kind of showcase you're doing. So if it's wider or narrower, you know, you change the way you display the uh, image details next to it. Yeah. So right behind container queries at 2.9% was parent selector. I know exactly what they're talking about. And this would be amazing. Yeah. There's, there are a I've, lot of reasons why we don't have that yet, unfortunately. And it, <laughs> it's kind of like the SAS thing, which is yeah. the the process of looking up a parent is just an expensive processor ask for the browser right now. Right. Because of the way the DOM is rendered and the way see it, there's and I would explain it better if I could and I can't. Yeah. I've read articles on the way that, you know, a browser reads the DOM tree and parses that out and that that look ahead then look back to the parent is just a funky it's a funky request for the way browsers read the DOM. Um but again, I think that it is reasonable to imagine that in a world where our CSS is constantly evolving, mm -hmm. I think we get that. I think I think we get it sooner rather than later. I think that will get to the point where it ceases to be an expensive ask for cell phones and for um, tablets and, and all that. Uh, the other ones, I'm just going to read them really quickly. Uh, nesting, browser support, functions, scoping, mix-ins, which you kind of already have in SAS, but I guess putting them in regular CSS. Um, yeah, that, that comes back to that what I started yeah. off with, which was I think we will get SAS-level functionality down the road, but again, it's <laughs> it's that heavy weight. Okay, now you got to, you basically need that browser to process your css and that takes seconds the one i really like though is houdini and there's only a one third of a percent a 39 total respondents asked for this we had to look it up yeah i had not heard of it's, houdini 
it's pretty wild. Uh, there's a I put a link in the show notes for it. It's houdini.glitch.me, and you described it as uh, it does for CSS what web components did for HTML. That that is the way I yeah. read it. Um, and if anybody from Houdini wants to clarify that for me, I'd love to hear it. Um, but the way it read was it basically lets you extend the CSS with JavaScript, yeah. which is what web it lets you do for HTML. It lets you tap into the CSS rendering engine and modify how the CSS behaves, I guess. Yeah. Or or define new behavior. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, like whatever. roll your own CSS. As long as you've got a library that will do what you want, then you could tie that into the That chain. is, I mean, it seems exciting, but also like terrifying future. <laughs> hey, Aaron. But... <laughs> does it, uh, does it sound like magic? <laughs> you have to do a shot for that. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> okay, let me take uh let me take a break here and then I'll do a shot and uh does that satisfy what what you need? Okay. Here, look. See, look, I'm going to sh- I'm going to hold it up to the to the camera for Aaron oh so you can yeah. see. Don't die. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to shoot this and we will be back here in just about 60 or so. Hopefully Mike will be alive and I won't have to take over piloting this craft into the ground. Don't worry, we're already there. (laughs) The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Well, I hope you found that useful. Uh, If you want to know all the details, go by uh, the State of CSS website. It's 2019.stateofcss.com and... They've got a ton of information there on everything from frameworks to methodologies to processors, adoption rates, features, all of those things. The site is beautiful. The data is great. Be sure to go by and check that out. And uh, just go and click through a couple of the pages. You just got to see the the Nuvo, Nevo, 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 yeah, Nevo. The Nevo thing is awesome. That's off to him. And uh, sign up for their mailing list so that you know next year when they do the next uh, survey because that, I mean, the information, at least to me, is always interesting. It, it reminds me of, like the state of uh, development that uh, Stack Overflow does. Oh, yeah. Developer yeah. survey. That's always, it's always neat to get that information and just kind of figure yeah. out what people are doing. And I think, it, you know, it, it helps me make decisions. You know, seeing something like Bootstrap falling off the radar from a adoption standpoint you know that matters 
I I tell you, I kind of want to learn more about Tailwind. <laughs> if that many people are satisfied with it, um, I think it's worth worth checking out. So I'm gonna give Aaron a homework assignment, and I'm gonna do it on air so that all of you can hold him accountable to it. But no! uh, Aaron needs to reach out to one of the devs for Tailwind and invite them on the show, and we'll uh, we'll have a nice sit down. Michael. And- this is summer vacation. You're not supposed to get homework on summer vacation. Well, your summer is so much more enjoyable than mine anyway because it's a whole oh. 53 degrees up in Ithaca. So <laughs> I think you can suffer that. <laughs> we only get fog. We don't get tornadoes. So I guess you have a point. <laughs> Folks, thanks for joining us this week. We appreciate you sitting down and spending your time with us. Yeah, be sure to come and uh, connect with us. You can hold me accountable about my homework. Or if you're from Tailwind CSS, you can contact me and do my homework for me. Uh, Facebook and Twitter.com slash DrunkenUX and on Slack at DrunkenUX.com slash Slack and the Instagrams at Instagram.com slash DrunkenUX podcast. Folks, stay tuned. Always going to be more coming up. Uh, Exciting stuff. We've got other giveaways planned for the short term, the long term, and other things. We'll be different places. I'll have stickers. I'll have coasters. I'll have all of those things. Share us with a friend. Share us with your office. Just don't share us with your neighbor because uh, Carl uh, and I just, we're having trouble. That's all I can say. You know, we're going to talk about that. We are, and I, I will tell you the same thing I tried to tell him and he just wouldn't listen and I don't know why but I tried to tell him you know what the best advice I can give him for his for his yard and for his life and and for his work is to keep his personas close and his users closer bye bye <laughs>